0: Our reading this morning um, comes from the book of 2 Timothy, um, chapter 3 from verse 10 to verse 17. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured... And yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So far the reading.
1: So let me encourage you to have uh, either a piece of paper with you or or one of these booklets where there's some space to take notes and things. Um, This is the second of our, so in our Head, Heart, Hands and Holy Worship series, this is the second of our hands uh, things and so we're going to be looking today at how might we study the Bible for all that it's worth. Um, there is a great book that I can recommend to you called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, it's written by a guy, or two guys, um, Fee and Stewart, and we actually have a copy in the library here. Uh, it's, a, it's a really helpful overview of how you can read each individual passage of Scripture. And what I want to do today is kind of t- take a zoom out picture and think about how we might read the Bible as a whole. What are some of the principles that we might apply to Scripture and our understanding of it uh, that might be helpful for us as we approach reading the Bible for all it's worth. <clears throat> so I want to ask a couple of questions and the first and probably most fundamental one we need to think about is what is the Bible? What does it mean that Scripture is inspired by God as, as we read here in, in 2 Timothy 3? Uh Is this a book that is written by God or is it a book that is written by people? Uh, Is it a book that has been translated over and over and over so that what we have today is basically a Chinese whispers kind of version of what was originally written? Is it a book that contains God's truth or is it a book that is true? Is it a book that contains God's Word or is it God's Word? And if it is God's Word, how does that work? Uh, Is it a book written by God or written by people? And if it was written by people who are, you know, fallible human beings, how can we trust that what they wrote is actually any good? These are the types of questions that have confused Christians and actually have diluted our faith over the last couple of decades. A couple of years ago, 2019, um, a Baptist minister in the US wrote an article for USA Today uh, in which he said, and I quote, Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Similarly, the president of the Union Theological Seminary uh, in, in the United States, an institution that was founded on the principle of the infallibility of Scripture, Um, said she found that the the virgin birth was quite a bizarre teaching, a bizarre doctrine. When she was asked uh, what happens when people die, she said, I don't know, there might be something, there may be nothing. My faith is not tied to a divine promise of an afterlife, because I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent and omniscient being. This is the head, the principle of that college. These are prominent Christians who have gotten their view of Scripture so wrong that they actually find themselves outside of God's kingdom. Because here's the thing, it is critical, it is absolutely essential that we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, I would go so far as to say that our entire belief system is built on the fact that what the Bible says is true completely true and without error. It is not simply that the Bible is a book that contains the truth. It is a book that is the truth. It is a book of ancient words that are ever true. They are alive and powerful and they change me and they change you. And when we come to Scripture, we do so with open hearts, don't we? Asking God to change us through his word. Now notice what Paul writes here in, in 2 Timothy 3 is not that God wrote the Bible, but that God inspired it, that he breathed it actually is the probably the most literal translation. That's where the word inspired comes from. Uh, it is breathed by God. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God breathed. I think the ESV has it. Now, to be clear, what this does mean is that um, uh, what we don't believe is that the Bible was written by God, that he somehow, uh, kind of like he did with Moses and the Ten Commandments, wrote them on with his own finger and he himself scribed the words. Rather, God inspired human writers to write down what he wanted them to write. And this is clearly necessary if you, if you actually, with any sort of... Um, intellectual integrity want to believe what the book says because we can clearly see that the bible was written over a few uh, like probably about two thousand years there are different styles in scripture there are different authors who have different emphases and if god was the physical writer of all of scripture that simply wouldn't be the case we but we don't believe that we believe that god inspired human people humans to write well, what they wrote down was inerrant, that is, totally without flaw. It is precisely because God inspired them that what they wrote has been preserved and is without error. And this is critical for our faith. For our belief in Jesus to cohere, we have to hold on to this truth. Our faith is a faith, actually, first and foremost, that what the Bible says is true. If only some parts of it were true, then we could pick and choose what we wanted to believe. And if there was some passage that disagreed with something we don't want to agree with, something like that in our society, for example, that practicing homosexuality is a sin, then we can just ignore that because that obviously doesn't come from God's Inspiration. Without believing that the Bible is completely true and fully inspired everywhere, our entire faith falls apart. And when we can pick and choose which parts of Scripture we believe, we actually reform God's Word into our own Word. And if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you actually can't be sure of anything. Why would you trust? That the ten commandments are a good rule for living if you don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture why bother praying the lord's prayer did he even teach it and for that matter why even bother to believe that jesus even existed i mean if you don't believe in the full inerrancy of scripture how can you be sure that he is the one who is revealed in scripture Now, I want to hasten to say that I think there are very good reasons, uh, rational, sort of intellectual reasons for believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, um, but it is a critical faith position. It is something that we take on faith. But, that said, I do believe there are some good reasons to, to trust, and here are just a couple. Firstly, all of Scripture tells the same story. Uh, We spent about a year looking at that um, throughout throughout the last year. There is this golden thread of salvation that runs throughout the whole Bible, despite it being a book being written over 2,000 years. I think that's one of the most compelling arguments that prove that God inspired Scripture. In fact, when you look at it, um, there aren't any contradictions within Scripture. There are a couple of difficult passages that you have to sometimes hold in tension. But when you, when you understand the context of why a passage was written, there are actually very few difficulties. When you understand the Bible in its redemptive historical framework, even these can be relatively easily explained. How is it that people that wrote from the very beginning, you know, Moses, the first five books, point to the same person, Jesus, Uh, who wasn't even prophesied at that stage to come for another few uh, few thousand years if god wrote scripture if he inspired it through people then that might be true how is it that the prophets could uh, predict with perfect clarity and accuracy what would happen to the messiah when he does come well if god inspired the bible then that's not a problem how is it that the prophecies of what will come in future in Revelation look so much like the prophecies that came before fulfilled in Christ? Well, that would work if God was the one who inspired Scripture. That is impossible if the Bible was simply written by wise people over 2,000 years. Scripture cannot be as cohesive as it is, telling the same story throughout, unless all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by Him. The Bible is a book written by people, inspired by God, completely er inerrant. It is the true Word of God. So that's the first question I want to answer. What is the Bible? It's a book written by people, inspired by God, completely inerrant. What does the Bible do, though? So one Timothy two, uh, sorry, two Timothy three, verse sixteen gives us the answer. He, uh, Paul gives us four things that Scripture actually does. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Now, Paul, who writes this letter, starts by saying the foundation of scripture's ability to be profitable for teaching rebuking and so on is its God-breathedness, its inspiration. All scripture is God-breathed and because it is God-breathed, it is profitable and useful for these things. The crux of the argument lies on the end. If, if the Bible wasn't God-breathed, then it wouldn't be useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and so on. But since, as we've just uh, discussed, as since Scripture is God breathed, it is profitable. Now, we all, I think, are familiar. I hope that reading Scripture is useful for teaching. That's pretty standard in the Christian church. The role of Scripture is to teach people, and we need teaching. Because we live in a world where truth has been so distorted and twisted that we need something inerrant and true to teach us what is really real. This is true of our society and it's true of ancient Christian society. It is for this reason that when the book of Acts writes about what the early church did in Acts chapter 2, the first thing they did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We read in Romans 15 verse 4 that whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, uh, Paul writes, These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction. Scripture is there to teach us reality. And I think most of us are familiar with that. That's why we come to church often and why uh, our Bible teaching is a central part of our worship services. But friends, have you ever considered um, the rebuking and correcting aspect of Scripture? Its usefulness to rebuke and correct. Now this is basically uh, all the parts that, need, that is needed to convince someone that they are sinning. The first part is to take the God's word and to show them, look here, this is what you're doing and this is what God says about what you're doing. To use a silly example, say your Christian brother or sister is prone to stealing things that aren't theirs. It is actually your job to take scripture to them and say, look here, the Bible says you shouldn't steal and you're stealing, therefore God actually has something to say about how you live your life. And if this gentle correction doesn't work, then it turns into kind of rebuking. It it kind of goes up the chain, if you like. And according to the Bible, it is actually perfectly legitimate to rebuke someone, to tell them off for doing wrong, along the guidelines that Scripture gives. We read these guidelines in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. "'If your brother sins against you, tell him his fault, between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, then you've won your brother.'" But if you won't listen, then take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. Can you see, though, how important it is that we believe that Scripture be true and inerrant to be able to do this? Because if you didn't believe that the Bible was inerrantly true, you would not be able to be convicted of your own wrongdoing. There would be no standard which someone could come to you to with and say, look, this is what God says about how you're living. And you would have no standard to take to someone else to encourage them and to build them up. But notice also, friends, that this requires by definition that you judge others. That you judge their actions according to Scripture. We are very fond of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, Do not judge lest you be judged. For with the same standard with which you judge others, you will be measured. But we need to measure, to balance that teaching which Jesus shared to all kinds of people which were both Christians Christians well, soon-to-be Christians and not, with Jesus' own words in John chapter 7 where he said, stop judging according to outward appearance, rather judge according to righteous judgment. In both cases, there is judgment where Christians can help each other grow. You cannot help someone else live according to the Scriptures unless you judge their actions according to the Scriptures. Friends, this is not something we're good, about, uh, good with. But it is part of what it means to be a church. We are to judge one another's actions, but as one of my growth group members noted this week, our judgment should not include condemnation. Yes, we have an obligation to judge each other's lives, to measure it against Scripture so that we can help them be the most holy people they can be and for them to help us to be the most holy people we can be. But that judgment does not include condemnation. Condemnation belongs only to God. He's the only one who can condemn us for our sin. Now, what's the difference? You judge rightly when you see your friend stealing and takes them to Scripture and says you shouldn't steal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You condemn that person, though, if your thought goes further. Since you steal and I don't, I'm a better person than you. And therefore, you're inferior to me before God. That's condemnation. The gospel is that we are all equal before God, equally condemned because of our sin, whatever that might be. And if we are Christians, we are all equally covered by Jesus' blood. That doesn't mean that you don't have blind spots that you need to be pointed out. It doesn't mean that I don't have blind spots which you need, need to point out to me. But when we believe that we are better than each other because of our good works, we've gone astray. And that's exactly the last function of Scripture. Helping each other live righteously is what Paul talks about in the fourth function of Scripture, training in righteousness. Righteousness. The Bible is a book that teaches us how to live our lives. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that's kind of the the theory of the Bible, if you like, the doctrine of Scripture. But if you personally want to get the full experience if you want to get the most out of your own bible reading the maximum teaching correcting rebuking and training and righteousness that you can we need to approach scripture correctly we need to learn how to read the bible for all its worth to the best of our abilities so then the final question i want to ask is how then should we read scripture Now, this will be familiar to some of you, particularly if you've attended the training we've run here over the last couple of years. Um, So if that's you, consider this to be a healthy reminder uh, of how Scripture works. If you just go back one slide, please, Sandra. Um, The first thing we need to remember is that all of Scripture is Christocentric. All of Scripture is Christ-centered. Jesus himself says this, of himself, in Luke chapter 24, where um, where he's on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with these two uh, people who are disciples who, and, and then he says uh, to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them uh, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He starts teaching them how the whole of the Bible ultimately points to himself. He doesn't, the scripture doesn't say He's teaching all the things uh, concerning himself in the Scriptures, but all the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures, all of Scripture, points ultimately to Christ. Jesus is the context and content of everything that happens in the Bible. All of Scripture, whether you're dealing with the Pentateuch, the start of the Scripture, the, the books of history, wisdom books, they all somehow reveal Christ to us. Now, how do they do this? I think there are three kinds of ways in which we find Jesus in every kind of text. The first is the stories of redemption. There are prefigurements of Christ and there's a religious system that God has provided. So in the stories of redemption, they all Teach us about Jesus in some way. Now, they're all incomplete, but they all teach us about what Jesus came to do. So, for example, uh, think of Israel being saved out of Egypt when they were delivered during the Passover. It is an amazing story of God's redemption of his people. He uh, he raises up a great leader. He delivers his people out of the land of slavery where they become yoked under Egypt's rule. Israel is saved out of Egypt and they are delivered. They escape the land, they're established as their own nation, but the story is somehow incomplete. Because even though Israel escapes Egypt, they carry sin in their heart. They are delivered, but not completely. They are redeemed, but not completely. Jesus is the only one who can redeem completely. So when we read the story of Israel being saved out of Egypt... We are supposed to see that it points to a greater salvation that comes when Jesus saves us, not not just out of Egypt, but out of the slavery to sin. So we see Christ in the stories of redemption. Secondly, we see them in the prefigurements or types of Christ. Now, Jesus appears throughout the Old Testament in a number of different ways. Whenever you read of a king or a prophet or a priest, in some way that function is fulfilled by Christ. If there's a great prophet, it prefigures Jesus, the greatest of all the prophets. When there's a great high priest, it points to the ultimate priest, Jesus. When there is a great king like King David, it points us to the greater king, Jesus. When God gives Israel, for example, uh, the description of the tabernacle, He gives them this sacrificial system to atone for their sins. One of the key people in that whole religious system was the high priest. This is the only person in all of Israel who could go into the innermost, most holy place in the temple or the tabernacle. And the reason for this is because that's where God's presence was. That's where God's holiness was. And if you came into this space in an unworthy manner, in a way that you weren't clean then you would be burnt up by God's presence. And so when we see the high priest whose job is to come before God on the Day of Atonement and to intercede on behalf of God's people with God, we are supposed to see that that's what Jesus does for us eternally. He is the greatest high priest who ever was and is right now in front of God in the most holy place that is God's throne room interceding for his people. Even now. So there are these types of Christ that we can look for. And then finally, we see, God, uh, we see Christ also through the sacrificial system, the religious system that uh, God instituted for Israel. Again, for example, uh, in Israel, on this day of atonement being mentioned, there is a scapegoat, a goat or a sheep on whom The sins of the people were laid once a year and then this uh, animal was thrown out of the city, sent out of the city into the wilderness to die. That is supposed to to point us to Jesus who takes our sin, and we're going to think about this on Friday, goes out of the city onto the cross to die. When we read that in Israel's sacrificial system, For sins to be forgiven blood must be shed. It points us to the fact that Jesus' blood flowed for us was shed for the complete forgiveness of our sins. The whole religious and sacrificial system was built to point us to Christ. And so when we read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all these kinds of weird rules that we don't keep today we are supposed to see that they point us to Jesus who kept all of these things for us. Now with all that knowledge in place, I want to introduce you to the Swedish method, which is the next slide. Now in your little booklets today, you will have a copy of this. Um, So we printed two pages of these. This is a a really small, simple tool to help you study scripture. Um, You can rip this out, you can photocopy it. It's actually on our website as well that you can download and reprint as many times as you need. But um, uh, it is a way to study scripture that doesn't, uh, I guess, take forever, um, and really helps recognize that Christocentricity of Scripture. So when you read a passage, the first thing you do is you ask, how does this passage point me to Jesus? One of my favorite passages in Scripture is uh, Deuteronomy 23. And what happens is Israel is in the desert, and the people are rebelling against God as they are wont to do, And God sends all these venomous snakes to come into Israel. And they're slithering around and they bite people and they die. And so Moses cries out to God and he says, please take away the snakes. And God says, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to take a pole, make a bronze snake, put the snake on the pole and lift it up. And then whenever Israel, anyone in Israel gets bitten by this venomous snake, if they look to the pole with the snake on it, then they will be saved they'll be cured they won't die and so that's what Moses does he makes this bronze snake and the pole and so on and he lifts it up and when people look at the snake they survive and you think okay well how does this passage point me to Jesus and if you've been a Christian for a while you will notice that that is a theme that happens in the crucifixion he who had no sin became sin for us so that whoever will look to Christ for salvation will be saved God provided for Israel a way to be saved out of the serpent, which kind of represents Satan's sin and so on, if they were to look up to the thing lifted up on the pole. And so it is with Christ, the one who's lifted up on the cross, to whom we can look and be saved. So the first question is, how does this passage point me to Jesus? Well, the snakes remind us of Christ. The fact that he's a snake on the pole reminds us that Jesus became sin for us. And I just find that wonderful. It's one of my favourite passages. The second thing is the little light bulb there. Uh, What is something that shines from the passage, something that draws your attention? What is God revealing to you at this point uh, that jumps out to you? You answer that question, you can write it down. The third one is what is hard to understand? What would you like to ask God about? Maybe this is a difficult passage. Snakes in a desert, you don't understand. Okay, well, there are answers for that. So maybe there's some work you've got to do. You can talk to me, you can consult a commentary. Um, You can can look it up on Google. Sometimes that's a good idea, sometimes it's not. Um, But there might be something that in prayer you want to bring before God that you don't understand. And then lastly, the arrow. What is the application to my life? In this case, I can look to Christ no matter what goes on in my life, whether it's snakes or not, I know that I've been saved and therefore I can be assured that Jesus will walk with me wherever I go. The punishment for my sin has been taken. That means the difficult parts of my life are not punishment. All of those are applications that could, could be part of that particular passage. So I give this to you as a tool uh, to think through and to work through. Um, I think when we read scripture this way, with Christ at its centre, with his word applied to our lives, then we are really starting to read scripture for all it's worth. Now you might have different ways of reading the Bible and we want to know about that now. So we're going to pause at this point um, and we're going to break into our reflection spaces. So at the end of all of our services we have a space to reflect together you can either do this individually, if you've got your little booklet with you, um, there are a bunch of reflection and discussion questions. If you want to do that individually, take the time now to think through these. Um, if you want to do that together with two, three, four, five, six others, uh, we're going to break in for a couple of minutes to do that now. So let's, uh, let's spend some time encouraging one another or reflecting personally with these. Let's do that now.